Welcome back to Humans of Grad School, the podcast about humans who happen to go to grad school. Being a grad student can often become a large part of our identity, but it's not the only part. This podcast aims to share the stories of students behind the research. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Humans of Grad School. Oh my goodness. Um, I'm a little bit tired today as I was working on this. Um, Just to give you kind of a semblance of where I'm at this morning, the presidential election results were announced all over the world. And so I don't know what day it is. As far as I'm concerned, it's still November 3rd. And then before that, it was March 13th for about 200 days. So I'm a little bit tired. But um, yeah, we're just trucking along. We're moving forward. We're making episodes. We're sharing wisdom. We're doing what I'm just babbling at this point. Honestly, I don't even know what I'm saying. Long story short, here's a new episode. I'm very excited about it. I think it'll bring you a lot of joy. And what's new about this episode is I've included some bloopers at the end. We got a little bit silly during this episode. And so the end bit is just a chunk of the interview that made me laugh and hopefully it'll make you laugh too. So instead of making me make uh, 2020 any longer, let's get to this episode. Today's guest is Srikar, naive optimist, continent hopper, and haver of nices. Let's hear his story. When I was growing up, I was one of those kids with like way too many goals and no tangible way to achieve them. Like my first thing I think was an astronaut. I had fully convinced my parents that I was going to be an astronaut. Um, But then I changed to like a baseball coach. I wanted to be a baseball coach. And then I realized I wasn't very good at baseball. Um, (laughs) So... Over time, it kept changing. The first thing I think would I would say astronaut, and then that evolved into a scientist because I realized that I prefer not actually doing. So I know that astronauts often have a lot of like physical training and things like that, and I never saw myself doing those kind of things. So I was like, I would much rather just learn about things and find out more about things. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much what I would say I wanted to be when I grew up. But then, yeah, and now I am a scientist. So it is cool. Yeah. Okay, so to backtrack for a second, yeah. um, how did you end up wanting to be a baseball coach? <laughs> well, so, okay, so when I was seven, my parents and I moved to Japan. And when we lived in Japan, they wanted me to like, do stuff in the local community and they decided that oh there's like this school close by where they have weekend baseball lessons and so they put me in baseball lessons but even though I wasn't very good at baseball I was like I had a I think I had like a mind for baseball tactics like I understood the game even though I wasn't very good at playing it and I always thought that okay maybe maybe that's something that would be cool to do because I would often when my coaches would talk to me about the game and like, tell me what to do. I often liked that part more than the actual playing of the game. (laughs) 
So I think that's where it probably started. And even later on, when I was doing high school in my undergrad, I think that like sports coaching mindset was still there because I, I, when I was six, I fell in love with soccer or football. Um, and I, to this day, I still have like a low-key goal of trying to learn more about coaching um, in soccer because I think it's one of the very interesting it's a very interesting concept because when I would watch a lot of um, teams that I really liked and managers that I really liked, uh, something that really stood out to me was that people can put pieces of their personality into the way in which they play a sport. And it was quite interesting how like soccer managers' personalities would show in the team's that they would put out and the tactics that they had. And I kind of like that, that's a concept that's very interesting to me. Um, yeah. How did you take notice of these soccer coaches personalities? Honestly, through interviews. So you'd like the interviews that they would give, I think have give a really big insight into how, how they think, right? There's certain coaches who are way more aggressive. They're way more um, sort of in the way that they play. They're, they don't really, you know, their teams are very physical. Um, they don't play defensively. And so when I watch interviews of them and then I watch their teams play, I'm like, yeah, of course, this guy has a team that plays like this. But then there's other people who are way more, you know, calm, tactical, and philosophical. And they play they have emphasis on sort of the beauty of the game. You know, they have, they have these notions of we have to play as a single unit. You know, it, the goal that is created has to be beautiful. And like, I think for me, that, that's more what I would associate with. Like there's, there's a certain beauty associated with team sports that have always been, that's always been very attractive to me. Um, and I don't know when exactly I became conscious of this, but I think that it was always there. Like there was, when I would watch really great teams score really great goals, I think it would give me a certain pleasure that, yeah. And when I noticed that, I was like, okay, this, it would be cool to like actually make this if I was ever a coach. What kind of teams currently would you define as a really great team? Oh, so currently it's a bit of a harder question because the teams that I support, so I support largely two teams. Um, it's a team in the UK called Arsenal and a team in Spain, Barcelona, which I think a lot of people have heard of. And it's because they play a very cohesive style of, of football or soccer. They really they, they emphasize a lot on passing which to me is because when, when i play soccer i'm a i'm a passer like i'm not good at you know running really fast i'm not good at like aggressive style but i really like creating passing moves and so to me any team that really tries to focus on the fact that it's not the 11 people on the pitch play as one unit to me, that's a very attractive style of play. 
Now, Arsenal had this back in 2003. Like that was it was a great season for them because they won, they won the title without losing a single game, and this was the pinnacle of performance that they ever had. Um, similarly, Barcelona at the beginning of this decade, I mean the 2010 decade, they they had I think one of the greatest teams to ever play the game because, and when you watch them play, it's it's almost like all of them had the same mind. It's like they. They didn't have to look at where their teammates were. They just knew how the tactics were playing out. And the manager at the time was also a very like eccentric, creative guy. And you could really see that in the way that he would play. So currently, I both of these teams are not playing very well. <laughs> but, <laughs> so it's it's hard for me to say that I feel that way about current teams though there are teams that are playing very great soccer right now for example like Liverpool's playing really good um there's some teams in Germany who are playing really good soccer in this sense but the teams that I care about they're not doing very well (laughs) okay um I'm not gonna lie to you I don't know very much about professional soccer but I'm just gonna shout out a couple of names and you tell Mm -hmm. me whether or not they're overrated Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Is Cristiano Ronaldo overrated? No. He's actually like, he's good. So there's, there's a common rivalry that people cite between Ronaldo and Messi. That was the other person I was going to ask you about, because those are the only two names other than like some members of the Italian soccer team. (laughs) Right. So Ronaldo and Messi are great for different reasons. I think Messi is the kind of person who, when you watch him play, you are convinced as a viewer that he was put on this earth to do this. Like there's nothing else that he could have done because he is insane. Like when you watch him play, he is, it's like the ball is stuck to his feet. People just, you're not able to get it off him. He's great at almost every aspect of the game. He works really hard. Cristiano Ronaldo is the kind of guy who you can see that he's put in years of work to get where he is and he's a great player for that he's physically he's very strong he's mastered all the aspects of the game and for that you know you got to respect him but for me the reason that I think I enjoy watching Messi play more is because he's just it's almost sorcery to watch him play it's, it's beautiful. And, you know, you can just go on YouTube and type, you know, messy skills compilation or whatever. And you'll just, you'll see his, it's, there's a fluidity in his play that I don't think I've ever seen from anyone else, which is why I think he's touted as probably one of the greatest players to ever sort of play the game. So I would say neither of them are overrated. They are great players in their own right. Okay. Does this passion for team sports other than baseball and soccer extend elsewhere or are those the two primary sports that have your attention? Ooh. Um, so <clears throat> last year when the Raptors came to the, the NBA final, me and a few of my friends took an interest in basketball. Um, I do not know as much about basketball as I do about sort of soccer, but I do have an appreciation for 
the the plays in basketball where you know it's a very it's a team basket i don't know if that's the right word but it's when there's like a there's a synchronous movement between people and sort of it's a yeah i prefer yeah i would say that i appreciate the the plays where the players are really working together as opposed to like one guy going and just dunking into the basket. But again, I, I don't think I know enough about basketball to make kind of informed critiques about these kind of things either. Okay. Yeah. Would you call yourself a bandwagoner? No, because <laughs> for the following reason, um, Arsenal ha- didn't win a trophy since from 2004 to like 2014 and I started supporting them in 2006 and so I start obviously I supported them because they played so well before but sort of I I think I had I for the most of the time that I supported them including in, until now they really haven't been that good and and so yeah I I think the the expression the in the UK for bandwagoner would be glory hunter. I think that's the that's what they like to say. But yeah, I I wouldn't call myself that. Yeah, I'd say no. Okay. <laughs> so then, do you still follow basketball? Well, I, I watched a lot of games in the last um, this season, including the playoffs. But I only watched sort of Raptors games. Um, I've never lived in a city before like Toronto won the NBA finals. I'd never lived in a city that was um, successful in a sporting sense. So it was actually really nice to be part of that whole experience. Um, a year ago when, you know, the whole city was pretty much supporting the team and it, it just feels nice to kind of be in that atmosphere. And I went to the parade as well Um on you know university i think that was yeah and that was that was really cool and i think it was it's really interesting because and my friend was saying this earlier that street where they had the parade i've seen that street with two million people and now because of covid i've seen it with zero people and it's it's kind of surreal to have those two views of the same part of the city um yeah, I, I did enjoy that a lot. I did enjoy that a lot. Okay, so you mentioned that, you know, other than last year, you've never lived in a city with a team that's successful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so have you done, you know, you mentioned that you also lived in Japan. Like, have you yeah. done your fair share of traveling or is it just like Japan yes. and Toronto? Well, I, so I've lived in quite a lot of places um, throughout my life. I was born in the south of india in a city called hyderabad so if you if you like biryani that's sort of what we're known for um but i didn't live there very long uh we because my dad worked in finance with the the indian government for a while so we had to move around a lot and we moved to mumbai which is where bollywood movies are made and i stayed there until i was about seven and then they sent my dad on this assignment to Japan for four years. So then I moved with them to Japan. Um, then we came back for a while to India for me to finish high school. 
um, in Delhi, which is the capital. And so while we were in Japan, we lived sort of a really expat kind of life. And I remember when I had was leaving Japan, I wasn't happy with that. I'd felt that, you know, I didn't get the most out of the country that I could have. So when I was finishing high school, I really had this desire to go back to Japan and sort of quote unquote live like a local. Um, so I figured my undergrad was maybe the only time where I could take such a drastic step. And I did. So I moved to Japan for my undergrad. And so I lived there for four years. I traveled all around Japan and nearby countries. And then after I finished my undergrad, I came here to do my PhD. Yeah. So to answer your question, yes. How did you end up, you know, after finishing your undergrad in Japan, how mm -hmm. did you end up in Toronto? Right. So I'm a big believer in changing scenery every once in a while. And so I am lucky in the sense that my parents, when I was a kid, like loved to travel. And so they, you know, I traveled a lot with them. I've had the opportunity to see that the world is a very big place. And to me, the idea of just settling down in one place is slightly, a, at least not right. Right now, it doesn't seem like something that's very attractive because I feel like there's so much to see. And one of the reasons I like to change scenery is so that I can do that. So my goal is to live on all six continents at some point. Now, by the time I'm like, whatever, 40, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I've, uh, so this is my second continent, if you may. I still have four more to go. I mean, maybe I can live on Antarctica. I don't know. But um, I, I think that's, that's definitely one of the reasons that I wanted to move to another continent. And I figured, okay, I'd lived for four years in a place where, you know, it was so different from anything that I've, that I knew in the terms of culture, language. Um, I thought, okay, maybe I'd like to move somewhere where I can speak English, you know, without worrying. Um, and I figured North America is a nice place. Um, my supervisor at the end of my undergrad thesis had like knew someone here. So he suggested that I um, apply here to do a PhD. And yeah, it just worked out that way. So now I'm here. Now I'm here. <laughs> okay, well, with that, at the very beginning, you said that mm -hmm. you're a scientist now. Yeah. So do you want to tell me about how you're a scientist and what it's like to be a scientist? How do you science? How do I science? Um, <laughs> I, I do physics. So I'm a physicist, technically. Um, my specific type of physics is called condensed matter physics, which sort of studies um, matter. That's sort of my interest. And specifically, I am interested in, in magnets. And I'm interested in sort of weird kinds of magnets and 
what what are the things happening at the smallest level which give rise to interesting behaviors at the large scale, um, specifically with respect to magnets. So that's a lot of the work that I do. I One of the th- reasons that I kind of got into this line of physics, and one of the reasons I like it a lot is that it's, because I do theory, so I'm a theoretical physicist, but my field is fairly close to experiment in the sense that they're the experimental verifications of theories that we come up with are quite reasonable are can be expected to happen at a reasonable time scale and it's nice because let's say i write down a theory about a certain kind of magnet i have people in the basement of our building who are doing experiments on those materials and so it is kind of nice that you can verify any hypotheses that you have in a fairly you know, reasonable time scale. Okay. I have a multitude of questions. Okay, please. Um, okay, first and foremost, you're a theoretical physicist. What yep. do you think about the Big Bang Theory? Like the TV show? Yeah, so it's, it's not very good. <laughs> it's not very good. <laughs> Mostly because, okay, so a lot of the things that they say a lot of things that they say that sound like really sciencey words often don't make a lot of sense, or they're just a mishmash of words that are related, but they just say them in no particular logical order. And so I think many people in the physics community are just annoyed by that. Also like, that's not really how people are in the physics community there's a certain stereotype that they are propagating, which I don't think is necessarily true. Um, people in the physics community are very cool. We do very normal things, just like anyone else. So I personally don't like it very much, but, you know, I don't, I, I can't claim to speak for everyone in the community. <laughs> um, but yeah. <laughs> That's fair. Can you give me an example? Like when you say that they use these like technical terms or jargon and kind of just mishmash it all together to make the viewer be like, whoa, big science words. They're doing science. Like, can you give me an example of a time where they kind of do that and it doesn't actually really make sense? A lot of the times they'll use, you know, the word quantum a lot. They'll use the word quantum and then they'll use like the name of a machine which has like nothing to do with anything they really just want you to know that they're talking about smart people things but it it it's it i guess there are times in the show if you if you watch it without kind of if i turn off my physics brain and watch the show maybe my experience would be different but it's hard right it's hard to to really consider yeah it's hard to just turn off your brain like that Exactly. Well, you see, my follow-up question was going to be, you said that you write theories. Like, mm-hmm. so I'm assuming that it's nothing like the show where they have like a big like whiteboard or something and all of a sudden they wake up in the middle of the night and they're like, oh my God. And they write this humongous theory out on the whiteboard. Like I'm assuming. So the, the point of theoretical physics to a large extent is to, at least the kind that I do, you know, there's people who, for example, are doing experiments on very complicated systems and materials and things like that 
my job to some extent is to ask what is the simplest way that I can describe the experiment so that all the important features are captured in this very simple model. Because in the real experiment, there's so many things to consider. You know, there's like all these microscopic interactions going on. There's like all these effects from the apparatus that they use. There's all these crazy things going on. My job to some extent is to see, can I cut all the clutter out and just keep the most important parts of the physics that capture the right behavior and can hopefully make some predictions um, for future experiments and explain the experiments that have already been done in a more robust manner. Okay. So maybe to take a step back and contextualize this a little bit, you said that your research is about weird magnets. Yes. What are weird magnets? Right. So, you know, when, when people grow up, a lot of people have played with sort of bar magnets, right? The, The red and the blue, the red and the blue bars. So they are what I would call a conventional magnet. These are fairly well understood in the way that they behave. Um, people, people pretty much understand how these things behave. And there are certain experiments that you can do with these kind of magnets to show that they are indeed magnets. In one of the ways you can think of conventional magnets is that they are made up of tiny, smaller magnets, um, each of which is associated with an electron. Right? And so when you find that there's a magnetic field inside the material, there's usually another signature that shows you these smaller magnets. But it's possible that in some of these materials that they've been seeing recently, they can see the magnetic fields inside, but they're not able to find these little other magnets that are um, associated with the electron. And it turns out that the, the smaller magnets take on a much more complicated structure and in fact, that's, a, that's an example of what I would call a weird magnet because it doesn't behave the same way that a normal magnet does, but it's still a magnet. And so we, that's kind of what we work on. And we're also interested in seeing how the magnetism is related to, for example, waves that might propagate through the material. And this is something we're still working on, but it's... It's an ongoing process. And I think it's very interesting because something, when you look at these materials, they're pretty unassuming. You know, they're just a block of something, but there's so much rich and interesting physics going on inside these seemingly boring materials, um, which is, I think, very interesting. So what specifically are, you know, when you say that there's people in the basement of your building that are running yeah. experiments to test your theories, like what yeah. specific theories are you trying to test or what experiments are being run? Right. So for example, just going back to what I was saying before, um, I can say, okay, there's a cert- this is, I can tell you, this is what I think is going on at the Um, at this temperature, which is why this magnet behaves a certain way, okay? Then the people downstairs might have that material. And I tell them, if I'm right, then I expect this other material, this other experiment to show the following results. So one thing that they would do, there's something called neutron scattering, but they just bombard the material with neutrons. So one of the ways that people in physics actually find out about what happens inside materials is they just bombard them with different kinds of particles. So for example, neutrons, light, or photons. 
So a lot of the experiments that we are looking at and trying to explain have to do with neutrons. Um, so we make predictions for what certain neutron experiments should show. And then there's, you know, our collaborators have neutron beams, which they can use to sort of bombard um, the material with, and then they will tell us if their results will match what our theory predicts. And so that's what I meant when I say you know, people in the basement, or not just people in the basement, we, we work with some groups at uh, McMaster and um, some universities in the States where people have a lot of data available for us to play with. Okay. Um, maybe this sounds a little silly because I've just never witnessed it before, but like, how would you describe neutron scattering? Like, what does that, like, is there like a big laser beam? <laughs> like, how does it work? Sort of, sort of. So oh. you can imagine us, like, it's essentially, you need a source. So there's a source where they produce the neutrons, right? And you need to have like, essentially something that looks like a tube, which channels the neutrons to hit the target at a specific place. And so once you produce the neutrons, the only thing is to have them at the correct energy that you want them to be hitting the target at. And yeah, it's essentially like a beam of neutrons, a beam of particles that are just speeding towards this material and they'll hit the material and they'll scatter off. And then the interesting, the, the way that they scatter off tells you a lot about what's going on inside the material. And so that's, that's why these materials are called neutron scattering experiments. And so you can find out about the structure of the material. You can find out about what you can do is also you can impart energy into the material. So you can like hit it and the ener there's some energy that goes into the material. And the way that the material responds tells you about um, how the energy is distributed inside the material. So these are, that's sort of one simple way to think of neutron experiments. But it's a, it's a very kind of complicated field in and of itself. And I can't say I fully understand it either, like all the nuances. I just understand roughly what they're measuring and what I need to calculate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, so, you know, when you say that the neutrons like bounce off whatever material, and this goes back yeah. to our talk about weird magnets, like what are yeah. these materials that you're kind of putting there for these neutrons to hit? Like, are you sitting there like witnessing this happen? Well, obviously, the the when you say I I am not witnessing it happen as because I'm not the one in the experimental lab, but the you you often don't actually see the neutrons hit the material because you know there's you have to maintain a really low pressure, um, temperature, so it's it's really enclosed. But you what you're seeing is where the neutrons scatter off. You're so what you do is what you can kind of imagine is a a sphere. And you have the sample sitting at the center. And so you have the neutron beam coming in. And then what happens is the neutron beams sort of go inside and then scatter off whatever is making up the material. Where the neutrons scatter off onto that sphere tells you a lot about the structure of the inside of the material. These materials, you know, there are many different kinds. There's um, there's many names, you know, people call them perovskites, spinels, but they're just different arrangements of, of atoms with certain properties at the end. Of, they're crystals, essentially. And, you know, they, 
all of them have sort of different interesting physics going on. And I think what's really interesting is that crystals with completely different structures sometimes show very similar behaviors. And that's something that tells you that this problem is interesting because there's some kind of something much deeper going on rather than just something related to the structure. Have you yourself, um, after these experiments have been run, noticed particular patterns with certain crystals or materials? Yeah, I, I don't think I can talk too much about that right now. There are cases where there's some sort of physics going on, which is very similar between two crystals that seemingly have nothing to do with each other. Um, and the reason that they do that is something that we are trying to figure out as well. Like, how is it that something so different can show such similar physics? Um, is it just a coincidence? I don't like to believe in coincidences. So we'll see. <laughs> okay. So then I guess, like, are there, like, super broad implications for this? Like, if certain materials display a certain type of pattern when mm -hmm. they undergo neutron scattering, yeah. Like, is that a huge deal? Like, what does that mean? It, it depends on what the signature is, right? So one of the things with these weird magnets, which are the technical term for them is multipolar magnets. And one of the implications is that um, because the, the smaller magnets that are forming the full magnet have such a complicated structure and they're very robust, and what this could mean is that you could, for example, store information in these complicated objects in a way that's more robust than what we have right now. Um, with So the current storage technology can rely on those initial, very simple um, electron type magnets. So that's one implication. There's other people who work on things like um, high temperature superconductivity. So superconductivity is when you can transmit say current without any resistance and without any loss of energy, which, I mean, you can imagine how that, that's gonna be a huge thing if we could transmit power over large distances without losing any energy. And so one of the issues with that right now is that you can only do that at very low temperatures and very high pressures. So one of the things that people in the community are trying to figure out is, can we do this at a reasonable temperature and a reasonable pressure? And that is something that would, for example, change the world. That would change pretty much everything that we do um, in a very profound way. So there are huge implications to some work, though I personally am not working on this groundbreaking stuff. <laughs> um, maybe someday. <laughs> well, how did you even end up here in the first place? In this field? Yeah. Uh, well, when I was an undergrad, I wanted to do what I'll call the sexier physics, <laughs> which is like the, um, you know, astrophysics or particle physics. And so I, I worked with a, a professor of astrophysics for a while, and I just got really bored because, I don't know, maybe the project he gave me wasn't very good, but he just, I was just doing like numerical simulations the whole time and I wasn't really enjoying it. Um, so I decided, okay, let me try 
condensed matter. And I met this professor who he, when I, when I just, I just asked him like, can you just tell me a bit about your work? Like, you know, what do you guys work on? I'm looking to join a group for my bachelor thesis. Um, and he showed me a presentation of what he does. And I was like, wait, why is this so cool? Um, he sort of convinced me that you know, there's a rich depth of physics in stuff that is lying around us. And he showed me how you can, there's so much that we don't understand about things that are very, very simple looking. And they're experimentally accessible as opposed to like astrophysics where you need to build these massive telescopes or satellites to which take years and years to build. Um, so I think that's kind of how I ended up in the field. My undergrad work is not wasn't completely related to this. I had worked on like a very simple theoretical model just to play around with. Um, but now I think I have a much greater appreciation for a lot of these things. See, it's funny because you say like a pretty simple theoretical model. And for me, I hear theoretical model and like my brain implodes. <laughs> Well, I mean, theoretical models, people make theoretical models all the time with, in, in all fields, right? If people are modeling sort of population dynamics, that's, that's a theoretical model. It's similar to that. It's, it's a, the, the reason I said theoretical model, which is simple, is because I only considered, you know, one type of particle that was interacting in a very specific way that was easy to deal with. Um, but, you know, real life doesn't work that way. <laughs> Um, that's, that's sort of the idea. Okay. So, okay. Thinking about your research and the work that you do, if you were like at a party mm. and let's say there's a bunch of researchers at a party and you're all trying to talk about your research and you had to do mm. like, you know, when you're in like a seminar and you have to do introductions and they're like, Oh, say yeah. a fun fact about yourself. Like what's a fun fact? about your research that most people Ooh. would be like, whoa. Damn, I have to think about this one. <laughs> right, so there are these systems that people in my research community study, which um, are called fractional quantum hall systems. And so they're, they're the kind of systems where you can throw, for example, a large number of electrons onto a sheet of, onto a metal um, and you, you know, do some funny stuff with it. You put magnetic fields, you lower it to a certain temperature, whatever, and you end up with an object that behaves as if it is a fraction of a single electron, which is weird because you've put in like, you know, hundreds of electrons onto the system. But the thing that they all kind of conspire together to create an object that behaves like it's a fraction of a single electron. And so that's... Definitely a fun fact. And to be fair, people don't fully understand the system. They've seen this in experiments, but we don't really know why this happens. And there's like really smart people working on this and people haven't come up with like a good unified answer as to what's going on here. So that would definitely be one of the fun facts about what we do. <laughs> okay, so like, what does that mean? Like when you say like it takes on the properties or acts like half yeah. an electron, like yeah. what does that, what is it acting like? Well, okay. So a lot of times what happens in these kind of systems is they're, they're made up of smaller parts, right? 
And there's a huge number of these small parts, for example, electrons or atoms in a crystal. But the physics that shows up in the experiments um, and sort of one of the ways to understand this is that all of those objects are, because they're all interacting with each other, they act together. And one way to kind of imagine this, okay, so have you ever seen those spring toys? Which... Um, like a jack-in-the-box? Or not like exactly. A... So you can imagine like two balls connected with a spring. Okay. I'm going to imagine that. Right? Okay. Yeah. So can I imagine two balls connected with a spring? And what you can do is, um, actually, if you were to track the motion of each of these balls, if you throw it up in the air, for example, and your job was to calculate the motion of each of these balls, it's very complicated because there's sort of many different forces and everything acting. But it turns out that you can consider a certain combination of the two balls, and that combination behaves very simply. So in a similar way, uh, the, all of these constituents of a crystal or a system can be thought of as sort of a combination of all of them that behaves in a much simpler manner than the individual atoms would on their own. And this collective object behaves like a fraction of a single one of the objects, which is weird, and we don't fully understand that yet. Um, but it's very exciting because they think there's a lot of applications to kind of computing for really fast computers, what people call quantum computers. Um, that's definitely, yeah, it's a hard problem, but it's a very interesting problem for the people in the community to be considering i don't fully understand it <laughs> that's completely fine <laughs> to be honest not many people do <laughs> um i myself included i do not fully understand <laughs> that's it. okay we're it's, all in this together it's very interesting yes we are we are it's, it's definitely one of those things where even though when you say it it sounds crazy the real craziness is in sort of working it out and a lot of the things that i heard about as a kid with physics um i realized were so much cooler when i learned the math and kind of worked out the details on my own and i think that at least in physics a lot of the cool things like quantum mechanics at some point will become things taught in high schools because they, i think they are almost like a culturally very significant things in human history that we've come up with. So I really feel like we will soon be teaching people more about this. And so more people will get to know um, about a lot of the exciting things that are happening. Okay. So you had also mentioned, you know, like, I hope to be doing this kind of work in the future. Like, where are you hoping you're going to end up? You mean in from a research perspective or in like Well, do a, you think you're going to end up doing research? Well, one of the reasons that I even did is like joined the PhD in the first place because I like the I like the process of doing research. Like it's nice, you know. I like the idea of getting together with people, discussing ideas, and then trying stuff out, failing, and then trying again and then like having that moment where it just works. Um, that's a nice feeling, but academia is a very competitive space, and I'm a very relaxed person overall, 
And I don't know if I want to put myself through that sort of very competitive process. I, I don't have an answer yet. Like maybe my PhD will go really good and I'll be, you know, really dying to do a postdoc. But I, at this point, you know, I don't really know because the more time I spend in the PhD, the more I realize it's a very cutthroat world. Um, yeah, and I just don't know if that's what I want to do at this point. But it's definitely a possibility that I will end up in research. Um, it really depends on how the next sort of two or three years of my PhD go. So TBD. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you've learned during your PhD, you know, that you may not want to go into academia. Mm -hmm. Do you think that throughout your PhD or throughout your time in grad school, you've learned anything about yourself? Yes, definitely. I definitely think that I... So one of the things I learned when I first came here is that I'm not good at time management, <laughs> <laughs> which is something that I have definitely improved. Um, I also think that I, I realized that I'm much more a person who enjoys the process over the end result. Um, I don't, I think at least in this field, that's an important quality because a lot of the time there will be failure in terms of, you know, you're trying to get somewhere and it's very possible that something you've been working on for a very long time just doesn't work out. So I think you need to enjoy the process of doing it rather than just always looking at the, the end goal. Um, physics is one of those fields where you can work really hard for a really long time and just be wrong. And it's just, it will just lead to nothing. And that's a very sort of depressing thought, which is why I think you need to be almost like a naive optimist when doing this kind of work <laughs> in the way that you approach it. And you've got to enjoy the process of doing it. Otherwise, it's difficult to, to kind of enjoy the PhD overall. So I do think I learned that about myself and that I do have that quality. Um, which I didn't, I guess I never consciously thought about. Um, so I've become, I have become better at time management as well. <laughs> okay. Probably, yeah, that's, that's probably one of the things I've learned. Well, how are you, see, that's what I was going to, like, how are you bad at time management? Well, I just, I, my mind is always thinking about a lot of things. And so it's hard for me to, at some point, be like, okay, I'm just going to work and not think about anything else for this amount of time and then just kind of move on to the next thing. I'll always be thinking about all the things that I'm thinking about. And so what often happens is that I, it's hard for me to compartmentalize my day into sort of tasks. Um, and that I suffered because in the first year, I took a lot of classes. I, I think now I've sort of figured that out to some extent, which is good. Um, yeah, I, I think I haven't had this much of a workload before, which is why I didn't, I was like, okay, at time management before. 
because I didn't need to really push myself to manage my time. <laughs> but now, um, when I came here, it really became much more important, which is where I learned that I'm not as good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So same question as before. We mm -hmm. know that you like the process over the end result. We know that you've done quite a bit of traveling and that you'd like to live in all the continents. We know mm -hmm. that you're bad at time management. <laughs> yes. Would these be your fun facts at a party? Would these be my fun facts at a party? What would be your fun um, fact? Sure, yeah. These, these would be my fun facts. Um, <laughs> I would also say that I guess I could say I speak four languages. Is that a fun fact? That's a super fun fact. What languages? Yeah. So I speak English. Um, I speak Hindi, which is the like the main language in India. I speak Telugu, which is a South Indian language. And I speak Japanese. Yeah. Fluently, like read and write? Well, I can, I can, my Japanese is at a conversational level. And in terms of like writing, I can, uh, they have three scripts in Japanese, so I can read two of the three scripts like perfectly. The third script has about 10,000 characters, and so I cannot read all of them. I can read at most like 500 to 1,000. Um, but yeah, that's not, so I wouldn't say I'm fluent at sort of reading, but speaking and reading the, the easier scripts, yes, I can, I can do that. Um, I hope to learn. So my one of the things I've wanted to do, and I keep putting this off because I always have too much to do, is I want to learn French, Spanish, and Mandarin because those three languages, I think, those four languages along with English, I think give me access to a lot of the world. Like a lot of the world speaks those four languages. And so I think those four if I had like a life goal, it would be one of one of my life goals would be to learn those four languages. Um, so I can sort of go to all of these places and be able to experience them fully. Which of those languages would you want to learn first? Like which one would be number one on your list? Spanish, to be honest. Um, just because I really want to go to South America. My sister and I have always... Like, we've been talking about this for years. We've been saying, like, let's go to South America. Because we, she lives in Australia and I live here. So we um, we keep saying, like, South America is like a good meeting point for the two of us. <laughs> um, and we've been sort of talking about going there for a while. And so if I can learn Spanish quickly, we can do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You've spent this time traveling and learning about yourself and physics. Are there any words of wisdom or things that you've learned that you think are really important? Mm, yeah. I think the most important is that people are very complicated and there's no one way to go about the world. If I was to condense this into a phrase, it would be give the most charitable interpretation to other people's actions as you can, or give people the most benefit of the doubt as you can. And usually that's a good way to 
to live. Um, I think it also like, it's just part of what I said before. It's like a, there's a naive optimism in my personality and that I don't like to assume bad intentions upon people. Every, everyone's sort of here to have a good time. Um, yeah, that would be my, the thing that I, that I have learned. There's a there's a there's a there's there's a YouTuber who I who I really like. Just a note: this YouTuber's name is David Vijanic. Um, he has a phrase called his phrases have a nice. That that's it. Just have a nice. Oh, <laughs> I was like, <laughs> what's the end part? <laughs> exactly, uh, but the point is that the the nice isn't describing something that you should have. The nice is the thing to be had. Huh? And it's it's weird. It it's had such a huge influence on my life. In that the way I would rephrase my earlier statement is: everyone's just here to have a nice. <laughs> <laughs> everyone's here to have a nice. Yeah, and you might ask, "Have a nice what?" The point is that it doesn't matter. Just whatever you're doing, have a nice. That's that's really it. <laughs> <laughs> my mind is like blown right now. <laughs> Like, I feel like I have to go and tell my therapist know. this. This is amazing. <laughs> well, I'm going to write that one down and I'm going to bring no. it to my next therapy appointment. <laughs> and <laughs> we're going to um, talk about that. Yeah, I, I've conv- I've like gotten a lot of my friends here to start saying it. <laughs> have a nice? <laughs> yeah. So like all of you together, like if you're saying bye to each other, do you just say like, have a nice? Yeah, actually. Actually? <laughs> yeah, actually. I like it though. Like I like the underlying sentiment. Just yeah. be nice. Have yeah. a nice. Have a nice. And like everyone's also trying to do the same, whether they admit it or not. Interesting. Um, I think intent is important, right? When you consider people's actions. Oh, definitely. So my de facto intent is always, oh, you're just trying to have a nice. <laughs> In some way, shape, or form. Yeah, and I guess empathy is about trying to find out what their nice looks like. has been Humans of Grad School. You can listen to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Humans of GS or Instagram at Humans of GS Podcast. If you want to get in touch, email Humans of Grad School Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Oh, That's all. it's all about finding the nice. Yeah. Sometimes the nice is hiding behind a bad. (laughs) (laughs) Behind a bad? Don't be a bad. Have a nice. (laughs) See, I've converted you as well. We're good. We're good. Uh, Oh my God. Okay. (laughs)